Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture podcast. Today I'm very uh, enthralled and and, um, honoured to have Max Paquette on the show with me. He's got a PhD in biomechanics. He's an associate professor of biomechanics in the Human Performance Centre at the University of Memphis. He's a high school cross-country and athletics coach. His wife is a professional runner with Northern Arizona Hocker One One Elite uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona. Max himself was a good 3K collegiate steeplechaser in Canada. He's got roughly 95 publications at the moment as a research scientist. Uh, welcome to the show, Max. Hey, thanks, Dan. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be, uh, to be chatting with you. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, th- thanks so much uh, for coming on the, on the show. Uh, what I wanted to start out talking about was uh, what are your goals as a researcher? Uh, uh, like you've done a lot of research linked to running. What are your goals um, in this space? Uh, what, 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 at the end of your research career, what, what do you have wanted to have, um, I suppose, achieved? Wow! Right to the throat off the bat. I love it. <laughs> that's that's a that's a solid question, and I, and hopefully my tenure and promotion committee, uh, you know, listens in at some point. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, great question. I, I I I'm not sure. I think that's part of the nature of of research is that things evolve so much. And I think like my dissertation uh, for my PhD was on uh, knee osteoarthritis. And, uh, and I did some running research that was more independent studies and research with my uh, faculty advisor, then uh, Sonny Zong at UT Knoxville, University of Tennessee in Knoxville. But, um, you know, I did my dissertation in the health uh, field, and then I moved to Memphis for my first faculty job, and I thought, oh, I'm going to be a knee osteoarthritis researcher. And uh, because in the U.S., you know, you kind of have to find a research topic, not necessarily that you love, which is terrible to say, but it's true. Uh, it's something that will hopefully get you funded. Um, and I think it's pretty clear cut that, or at least maybe not clear cut, but well, well understood that running research likely will not get you um, at least federal funding, um, which is which can be a deal breaker for some universities hiring faculty. So you know, most people have a research line that is you know, health related that has sort of like, um, you know, something that is more fundable in quotations per se, right? Or or, for lack of a better term. But um, I have been very lucky to be at a place where I've been able to do some of that health related research. And that's why there's, we have a couple couple of publications that are more obesity related or health or aging and those kind of things. Um, But ultimately to me, um, in this field, the flexibility, the creativity that you have in academics, I find that it would be a- almost wasteful to, to not do something you absolutely love. And for me, uh, you know, it, it's running. Um, 
whether is whether it's about understanding various uh, factors that influence how we run and, and so on, but or uh, potential injury risk factors. Um, it's just anything about running, honestly. Like I've been involved in studies that are more nutrition based. I've been involved in more physiology based, uh, a bit more psychology based, but mostly you know biomechanics. Um, and it's just I I just I love it so much, uh, and it's hard to describe. It's uh, it's cliche, but you know when you're you know, there's this whole, you know, work-life balance situation. And, and um, sometimes it makes it hard to know what part is life, you know. And so you're, it's like, it's work, but it's fun. And, and my wife and I talk about this all the time and trying to, you know, she's so good. Like, I mean, her, her job, her her work is her life, which is, you know, her running. Because with running, you can't, like, you have to live it as well. Like, of course, you have fun and all these things and do all these, these fun things. But your job is to be an elite performer. So that comes with that kind of is, is attached to your life in a way. And so she gets it because she loves what she does. And so lucky to have her in my life and uh, being able to do what I love. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you, we work too much. Or I work too much and I back off. Um, but I just it's hard because it's so enjoyable. And so, you know, moving forward, I, I, I'm going to keep doing running research um, and I'm going to try to tie it into more injury stuff with uh, a more sort of global, uh, you know, application that might be whether it's aging, which I've gone down quite a bit recently. Um, and then uh, and the injury risk has some potential in terms of um, like military funding. Uh, it is difficult though, because uh, for a number of reasons, and we won't get to that because it's kind of boring stuff, but basically, you know, that's one avenue. Many have tried, few have done much funding in, in the running realm, but hopefully having built this sort of uh, resume of running research and injuries and things like that will help me out in the future. But frankly, as long as I love what I do uh, in biomechanics, the funding isn't a big part of it. You don't necessarily need to have a ton of funding constantly because the big costs are upfront, right? So um, continue doing research uh, in, in, in the field of running, uh, do some, doing some aging work right now with footwear, with strength training, some really cool studies that were unfortunately stopped due to the pandemic, but are I've resumed, I will resume shortly. And then the training load space has been really fun. Um, and, you know, I, when you reached out to talk about this, I was excited. So long answer. I'm sorry about that. Uh, yeah. But hopefully this could be also valuable for some young uh, scientists and faculty members that are, or even PhD students that, that might um, kind of want to hear these, these different sides. Because often it's about, you got to get funding. You got to get funding, which is true sometimes. But it also depends where you go to school. And I've been lucky to go to be employed at a university where um, – uh, my 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 boss, my dean, really supports what I do, and they see value of what I do, so they they're supportive of, of what we're doing. Yep. Nice. And um, Max, just um, recently, you published uh, a commentary with Chris Napier, Rich Willie, and Trent Stallingworth on um, moving beyond just recording weekly distance and 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 volume, and um, just talking about other methods that could optimize quantification of training load in runners. Um, do you mind sharing um, uh, the concept of RPE and how that could be beneficial for some runners to monitor their training load and why perhaps some runners should probably consider it a little bit more? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just a really fun topic. I think uh, I've talked about this. I Fortunately, I've talked about this with coaches a lot, which is you know, kind of who you want to talk to. Um, I do want to say that, you know, you mentioned the authors and, you know, just, just being on, a, on an author block with, with Chris and, and Rich and Trent, uh, 
you know, just that, even if the, even if the paper was one page and there was no good content in it, (laughs) that's, that's, that's solid right off the bat. So, uh, just shout out to those, to those three friends and colleagues. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, the concept of, of, you know, RPE or rate of perceived, uh, uh, effort, you know, obviously it's been around for such a long time. And if you look at work, uh, that's been done, you know, in the, in the 60s, 70s, and then 80s, 90s. So Bannister and then Carl Foster and uh, that whole, that whole slew of sports scientists who, who kind of set the, set the stage for the rest of us now. Um, you know, it's been, it's clear that RPE has been used for a long time and coaches have used it for a long time. Some coaches have used it for a long time. They don't know, right. Just, just because it's such a, it, it's a thing that, you might be prescribing effort or monitoring effort without knowing sometimes, right? So we could you could do that subjectively, or you could that you could do that with scales like zero to ten or six to twenty or whatever, which are still somewhat subjective, but at least you're quantifying something. Um, so a rate of perceived effort is typically uh, you ask someone after a training session, in this case a run, um, how the level of their effort, right? Uh, to keep it simple. So zero, 10, 10 being like the hardest possible effort and zero being rest and one being super, super easy. Uh, and then typically people, you know, will rate like a harder session might be like seven to 10 and a moderate, you know, four to seven and then easy and I think four, three and below. Um, it's important to understand though for listeners that this is a, a scale that is, that is that's specific to yourself. It's not something like, well, if you and I go for a run, right? You, you know, Max and Dan are out in a run somewhere. Yeah. And, um, you know, for some reason, maybe uh, I, I've been, you know, working a lot and I've had a lot of sleep and I don't feel too good, but I go for a run. I meet with you and we go for a run. doesn't matter how far out, long or fast. You, on the other hand, have, have gotten good rest. You've been training well. You know, you're kind of, you know, feeling good. And we, we're running the same pace. We're running the same distance, so on and so forth. But I just feel absolutely terrible and you feel great. Right. So on that day, um, you know, we're running the same distance, the same pace. Right. But because I feel so bad, my effort, my my rate of effort, zero to ten might be a, an eight, whereas you might be a three or a four. Right. Now, some people here will say, yeah, but you're running the, your pace is the same. So you're fine. Right? You, you did the run. Great. Yeah. Completely correct. I finished the run. I ran the same pace. You know. The problem is then that the, after the run and then the next day and the day after, and maybe for a few days after, I might be in, in, in a different position than you might be, right? So it might take me longer to recover because I'm, I was so tired and I still kind of ran through it in quotations, if you will, or sucked it up, you know, as people say. Um, and so that might put me in a small hole um, in terms of, um, of my, uh, you know, ability to, to, respond, to adapt from the training. All right, so of course the training you you the training is a stimulus the, and then you recover and that allows your body to then adapt and then get stronger you know better and so that's kind of the a big value of it is is understanding that your body doesn't know how fast you're going it doesn't know how far you're going but it does know how it feels right it, it knows it knows for whatever reason whatever's happened before life stresses work stresses family you know other other things um you know, it's, 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 it's psychological, it's physiological and pace and distance just don't quantify that very well. Nice. Right. So that's, that's valuable there. Yeah. yeah. And with your, uh, high school, or with your athletes that you coach, um, huh? how do you monitor training load, um, as a coach? Yeah. So, um, 
<laughs> so it's very, very like if any of the kids that I coach are, are listening, they'll they'll like they'll be yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, every Sunday, uh, or depending on when their cycle ends or their weekends or whatever, it depends. Not always Sunday, but typically on Sundays maybe they'll send me uh, an Excel document, right? Which which has basically um, you know Monday through Sunday or Monday through, or Tuesday through whatever or whatever, and then it's got one column for uh, run duration on Monday. And one column for Monday that's also uh, rate of perceived exertion or effort. So they will enter the duration and then the, the score, one to 10 for their effort. They'll do it every day. And then the way that I quantify training load is, is by using a metric that is called session RPE, which is you take the, the duration of, this, of the run and then you multiply that by the effort. Right? So if you run uh, 50 minutes and your, uh, your effort is five, 50 times five is 250. So that's your training load for the day. And then you add the training load of every day uh, to get for the whole week to get the weekly training load. Now, again, this metric is useless for other athletes that you coach. So it's, it's a, they're just like mileage is frankly, but that's a different story. Uh, and so, you know, with, let's say you're my athlete, Dane, and, and yep. you know, you get a training load of, I don't know, uh, 2,500, you know, one week. Right, and then the next week you get 3,500. Meanwhile, your teammate Johnny or Sally, you know, they have the first week they do the exact same thing as you, and their training load is 4,000. Right? Well, I can't say, oh, you know, Sally, you know, your training load is way higher than Dane's because you can't compare that because the RPE is is, is individual, and, and I say that because what you perceive as a seven out of ten might be a four out of 10 for Sally, for example, right? So it, it's, it, that's why it's, it's individual and needs to be used within a person, not between people. Yes. And that's, that's often something that I hear coaches say, like, well, it's subjectively hundred percent. But if the, if your instructions are clear to each athlete as to how they should rate their effort and what the scale means, and, and you make sure that they, they rate their effort consistently day in, day out, um, that will be a reliable way to monitor uh, effort within that person. Yes. And that's where people miss the, the mark a little bit, where they don't focus on the instructions and the details around the scale, and they assume that everybody does it the way they should. Right? Yeah. But that's, as long as that's clear and you're tracking within a person, that's great. So, yeah, effort is a fantastic way to uh, not just assess training, but also assess response, like the response from the training. Because if you feel crappy on, on Tuesday, it's probably related to stuff that you did Saturday through Monday or even before that. Nice. So it's it's not just telling you what's going on today, but it also gives you some ideas of what's going on before. So a lot of coaches do it without a scale. They say, how do you feel? Oh, I feel great. Right? And most coaches that coach at the elite level will understand that. If you if I say, oh, I feel great, I suppose, yeah, I feel great today. Right? <laughs> Just that different tone and function and how they're like their mannerism. I, of course, this might be audio, so you won't see what I did with my shoulders there. But um, <laughs> the, the best coaches will be able to identify that without a, without a number, right? Some kids will know. Well, if I say I feel bad, I won't get to do the workout or I won't get the race or whatever. So they just they just fake it and they say, oh, I feel great. But in reality, they, they, they don't, right? They just know what's going on. But the best coaches will pick up on that. Uh, and, and they can kind of, you know, adjust things accordingly that way. Yeah, no, great. And um, uh, I was listening to another podcast you did. It would have been a couple of years ago. And at the time, 
you were recruiting uh, runners for an online survey that was going to be about one year follow up of roughly a thousand runners and you were going to monitor their RPE, the volume of running they were doing each day yeah. and then um, get them to monitor how much sleep they had, report on their stress and their pain. Um, has that study been completed or what was the outcome there? Yeah, so um, the study was completed um, and we I presented some of the data last summer in Calgary at the International Study of Biomechanics Conference. Yep. And uh, although it was complete, unfortunately, we, we had about 1,200 respondents that started. Um, we had about 500 do the whole year. Uh, which is still good. We were open for a thousand. We got about five hundred. Of those five hundred, something like only about two, just under two hundred, um, filled out enough data, enough days, that we could use some techniques to sort of uh, address these missing data. Yep. The rest it was just too big. It was like a month at a time. Or like, okay, I can't do any of that. Um, yep. That was about two hundred, two hundred, and then the criteria we had for, um, you know, the way that what we did is it was a within subject design. So what we did is we we had we we looked for x amount of time where they didn't get injured, okay, and we used a, one of those periods as a as a, as an injury free survey period. And then we used a period where uh, there was an injury, and then we backed up from there. You know, uh, I think it was six or seven weeks. Uh, and so the person had to get injured, but also they had to get, they had to have a, a six week period of no injury, right? And of those 200, we think we had about something like 50 who fit that criteria, right? And then I forget what the other issue was. There's another issue. Anyway, we ended up with like something like 22 and 24 runners in, 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 in or no, yeah, something like that in the groups. So it, was, it ended up being really small. It was a ton of work yeah. to go, like, the survey wasn't that difficult because once it's on, like setting up the survey was tough, but then once it was on, it was kind of running. And we had, you know, folks like Molly Huddle who, who shared, which, you know, thanks to Molly uh, for doing that. And then we had a bunch of people sign up when she did that. Um, but then, you know, all that work, and then we only had, you know, about 2,000 people per group. Uh, we did, you know, the, the results did show kind of what we expected, which was, you know, training load measured as I just described before. Um, you know, when it was higher in the weeks preceding an injury, uh, we, we did detect that. Uh, and we use, you know, we use at the time, well, now it's like the frowned upon acute chronic workload ratio, um, which, you know, we use in this study and we did show that there is a slightly higher ratio between groups and, and uh, the confidence intervals between groups were, were overlapping just a little bit, um, you know, showing that it's not always, which, you know, we know that, like no metric is gonna predict anything ever uh, perfectly. Um, yep. And a couple of things like the sleep stuff was interesting. We kind of tied that in with that. We initially were going to break it down into like high training load, low sleep, you know, all these different things. But we still have people. You yep. know, that's why we need a thousand people. So we ended up kind of like not really doing that analysis because it just wouldn't have made sense. It wouldn't, wouldn't have enough people. But we did, uh, you know, when you look at sleep, there was always, there was nothing clear cut, but it was, to me at least, it showed that. You know, people that had fewer uh, fewer hours of sleep per night on average tended to be in that in that injury group um, more yeah. so than you know the frequency at least of those people. So, which makes sense, you know. Yeah. I think it's just it's not 
it, the, the study didn't end up being what we wanted it to be. Yeah. Um, which is which is unfortunate, but you know, we gave it a go. That was our, my first big online study. We've done a few uh, surveys before, but that was like a one year period. It was just, people just forget or they go on vacation and they just, we, like, we assume it's all zero sometimes, but then you can't be sure. So it's, you know, but you know, that was a lesson learned. Uh, it was a good experience and we'll probably do something like that some other time. Yeah. And it, what do you personally feel like when you look at an injury resistant runner, uh, that a runner that doesn't seem to get injured that often or seems to have everything just thought out and, and be on top of it, what do you personally feel are some common traits um, in runners that seem to not get injured? Yeah, good question. I think, yeah. I think I'll preface that answer by saying that I think if, you, if we're talking about elite, like top of the world runners, I think... Yeah that's different than if we're talking about like high school kids or, or middle school kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, the, the rest of, you know, the world kind of thing. Uh, at the elite level, I think it's really hard to avoid injury period. I think it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a unicorn, uh, if you will. Um, I think these athletes, uh, you know, it's always about hovering below and above, you know, some injury threshold line, whatever you want, the red line, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And they're constantly pushing limits to, to, to try to get better. And that's the risk you take, right? And so you can you can undertrain for years and you, you might do really well, but eventually, you know, you kind of plateau and you, there's nothing you can do. So a good example is my, my wife. I coached my wife for, let's see, 20, 20, like fall 2014 until this last fall, 2019. Right. So, uh, you know, five years and she had a, a, a history of injury that was, you know, a big injury cycle for years. Right. So from like 2010 ish to, to, to 2014, 15, the long period of time, you know, post-college, which is difficult, obviously, if you're trying to be pro and get a contract, most things. So for her, it was about like, you know, doing a little less, uh, being a bit smarter about strength training and all these other things and whether or not they, for sure work we don't know but it's one of those things where mechanically logically it makes sense to try it out and incorporate in the training and might help with performance and it, it it seems to work performance but it might also help with reducing risk of injury so it's, there's no no harm no foul kind of thing and so she was always training at in my opinion and she's super talented so whatever you know whatever training was at her she's going to do well but it was at a point where working on mechanics uh, for her because she had achilles injuries quite a bit and uh, she, she runs on her toes. And so it was about managing that uh, quite a bit. And then so keeping a load a bit lower, uh, a lot of calf strengthening and those things, right? Uh, and then this last one, then she was, in, she was injury-free for a while, and we kind of built things back up a little bit. Um, and then she, was, she had a couple of needles last year, but nothing crazy bad. Um, like nothing where like you're out for weeks. And, but she always, she always had something she was dealing with, which kind of sucks. This fall, she, uh, this winter, she joined NAZ Elite, uh, coached by Ben Rosario, and you know the the training has been really good, really strong training, and she has a group of people with her and constant resources to help out. Right, so they have a good group of um, therapists and strength coaches and sports psychologists and so on. So it's just a really complete package. So that's a big factor as well. Um, and, but again, I, I think even at that level, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. At some point, something's going to break and you can try all you want to, to make it, you know, resilient, whatever that tissue might be. 
um, you you have you almost have to try to see where what your what your limit is, you know, um, and then hopefully adapt and then heal and then do it again and be able to handle it again. So that's the thing. At the at the at the younger level, I think, you, you know, the, it's so tough between grade eight or grade nine, like you know, junior high to like grade twelve. You could have 20 kids, and they're all different physiologically. Right? They're different maturation uh, or, uh, phases, different developmental phases. Uh, they have bones that are still growing. They got muscles that are trying to keep up yep. uh, with the bone growth. I mean, all these things that, like, you know, often I find, like, you know, you get these these athletes who, who get stress fractures and all this, and I think part of it is we got to let these kids develop and avoid like high training loads and, 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 and volumes and things like that. And, and, uh, but I don't know what, I don't know the answer to your question in the sense that like, it's just so dependent on the the context of the athlete and what they're doing, you know, their age or maturation rate and you know, things like that. And, but, you know, I, I read constantly on like forums and things like there's coaching groups on Facebook and they're like, running is pretty easy. You just run and then you run more and then you run more. <laughs> and, and then you're like, well, that doesn't work. And they say, well, I've won a bunch of state championships or whatever, national, you know, it's like, yeah, you have 60 kids on your team, right? If one, if one gets hurt, you get a backup. Yeah. Like it doesn't work like that in the real world, you know? Um, and so, and you get a couple of kids who like are superstars and they kill it. And they think, oh, I got to run hundred miles a week because this kid does it. It's like, well, you know, this kid's also, you know, got, went through puberty when they were, you know, 13 and, and or they haven't gone through puberty yet, <laughs> you know, like various things like that. So anyway, uh, and I kind of digress now, but the, the injury thing is is uh, is tough, and um, it requires coaches that are perceptive, understanding of individual differences, and, and adjusting training when needed, and not not trying to not trying to put the spotlight on them by winning high school championships because really it doesn't matter if you win high school championships, like. Honestly, I, I, I hate, I sound negative and I, I know a lot of parents and coaches don't, might not like that, but look, like if you have a 14 year old, like in 30 years, like they'd rather be on a, you know, know that they were on an you know, Olympic final than they were on a, a state championship team or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's, that's my, that's my, like, sort of my, uh, high horse, I suppose. No, no, that was a, that was a, yeah. that was a great answer. Like, um, I think what I've found, especially during this period of COVID and, and not having the ability to regularly um, uh, see, see a few of the athletes I coach down this way, um, I found communication really hard and, um, and being able to have that good feel of, of where the athlete is and how they're coping. And um, over the last two months, uh, and I don't know if this is over analytical, over analytical or not, but I've been using a Google Sheets um, document, and I've been getting my, my the runners that I coach to try to fill out on a daily basis, like how much sleep they're getting, their stress yeah. levels, how happy they are, their pain, their fatigue, um, and and uh, about sort of seven metrics. And not all of them do it, but the ones that do it, it's been interesting and probably been able to pick up on a few things and it's helped with communication but I was, I was having a chat with a, a friend of mine who also coaches down this way yesterday and he was having trouble with a few of his athletes and and it was just like the communication was the hard part because like 
his athlete was going so well, but um, suddenly, like, the, the, you know, within a day, she, she had a sore heel, which he didn't know about and had obviously been developing yeah. for a while, but he just didn't know anything about it. Um, yeah. I, th- I think that mismatch between... Um, Oh, it's so hard because, like, as a coach, you, you can't put yourself inside the athlete's head. Um, uh, like, you don't it, – it's it's hard to, I suppose, fostering that relationship and that rapport between the athlete and the coach, I suppose, is so important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to, to that yeah, at all? I totally agree. I, and yeah. I, think, I think part of it is it's the culture that the coach establishes. If, if the coaching culture is, is so that if you're injured, it's your fault, you know, you're, you're, you're weak or, you know, whatever you're, 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 you're a sissy or whatever, right? I mean, that this happens, believe it or not, right? I mean, it kind of does. And so if that's the culture on your team, why would you go to the coach and tell them you're hurt? Cause you're going to get, you know, you're going to get yelled at or, you know, called names or something. So, you know, you just, you avoid it and you just hide it and you pretend like everything's fine. And then it just gets worse. Um, and that's unfortunately what often happens at the high school level or the college level happens too. And again, there's some great high school coaches and great college coaches that are really uh, good at communicating with their athletes. But I find often um, you see that where it's like, it, it's a blame culture where the coach will say, the coach will not take ownership into, uh, into the, the stuff they do with their athletes, you know? Um, and I'll give you an example. You know, I've, I've been lucky. I haven't had many athletes who've had a lot of injuries. I've had a kid who's been injured um, almost since last October, 2019, and he's really good. He was in grade 11 and grade 12 now. And, uh, you know, he, he was training really well, really good progression and things like that. And then he had this sort of, you know, distal, medial, tibial pain. It's like, okay, well, it's sort of, you know, we, it was about a, a, 10 days before the, the qualifying thing. So we kind of Work with our physio here and you know got him on the alter g and and uh avoided some avoided some hard surfaces and kind of cranked up cadence and then a, then a bunch of things to try to alleviate it in the short term so he could race right yep. he raced he did well you know it, it it was sore but it wasn't crazy bad and then it took some time off and we kind of rebuilt it and everything was going well and it kind of started back up again in january so like uh like three and a half months four months later I was like, okay. Uh, and then, you know, we weren't quite sure what it was. And it seemed to be more like a, like a peroneal, uh, sorry, a thin post issue. Because it was also kind of on the foot a bit, but it's kind of more posterior. So it wasn't clear. And finally, um, we kind of operated this, that, that assumption for a while in the spring. And then we realized it's just like, it probably still was bone. But part of it is, is I think when I was asking the kid, you know, show me where it hurts. And having had a tibial stress fracture, or at least something precursor to that before you know we don't really know sometimes right it's pain there but it's not quite sure yeah i think i think he knew that if he said it's right here he knew what the outcome was going to be right yeah and then maybe not but but you know that's kind of was my assumption at some point yeah uh and, and then um and then look and i was like look I, you know I, I think this might be on me i think i you know we, we assumed that it was something else and it might have been you know you know we, we, we should have probably backed you off earlier kind of thing so i think it's important to take ownership like that and for coaches and, and really admit that like okay that might be on me right and and um and, and and back off and not make the same mistake again of course if you say oh it's on me and you do it right again then you know it's pretty useless but um you know i think 
it, you know, if I told the kid, yeah, it's on me, it's my fault. And then he comes back and you do the exact same thing. Like, okay, well, maybe you don't care that much, you know, or you're dumb either way. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, anyway, so that happens, but I, I think it's important for coaches to, to not, to not create a culture of blame where if something happens, it's the athlete's fault. They yeah. have to be able to say, okay, I think this is on me. I, I didn't back you off enough. I pushed you too hard, so on and so forth. And, uh, but being in tune about the things you describe, sleep and nutrition, often the assumption is that the kids eat well too. Not just enough. That's probably the biggest thing. Are you eating enough? And sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they say yes, but that might not be correct. So, you know, investigating there a bit with the help of the parents uh, and then asking what they eat. Are they deficient in, in certain things? You know, vitamin D, calcium, iron, uh, these types of things. So having someone on your team, and we're lucky here, we have uh, uh, Dr. Joseph uh, Stancione, who's a PhD postdoc uh, in our in our center, um, and he's great uh, with nutrition stuff. He's kind of leading the whole, we, we're doing this iron supplementation project with our team and here at Memphis. And uh, But anyway, so all these things, you know, they, the coaches have to communicate, have to be aware of what's going on, and have to be clear about their expectations and, uh, and be accountable. Yeah, yeah. And... And I've, I've heard you talk about the need to be adaptable um, and how important that is um, yeah. in runners because like so often we can just be driven by the numbers and lose sight of the purpose of why we're out there. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, and you've used this analogy, the puzzle analogy. Um, yeah. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, it, you know, analogy is kind of, Sometimes it works, sometimes it don't. So I'm glad you like that one. I think some people uh, prefer others. So, you know, I, 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 I try to use like things that are specific to the person I talk to as much as possible. And that's like the teacher in me, I suppose. But I think the whole thing about being adaptable is um, it's, again, it goes back to education. Before we, before you recorded, we talked about education, you know, and, and I think often runners think that training more and following a plan which is not always objective because most plans are mileage based anyway um and so they think that if you don't if you don't follow that plan perfectly you are going to fail like you like your whole everything you've done is doomed and you've got to start over again in reality though is if you're starting out a run and and you're, it's not going well, and you pull the plug, and you decide not to finish that session for whatever reason, like, you should be thinking, oh, man, I'm so lucky, because my bo- I, I somehow was able to realize that my body needs a rest. Because some people don't realize that until it's too late. But when your body shuts down or just makes you feel really bad, and it doesn't matter how hard you try, you still feel terrible, like, oh, man, thank, thank you. Thank you, body, for being so in tune with me and letting me know that it's time to pull the plug and uh, go take a nap or something, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think that aspect uh, uh, of it is important to understand and educate people on um, and not, you know, doing more isn't always better, of course. Um, sometimes taking a day off. And some I, I coach some kids, like, they cannot take a day off. It's the end of the world. Like, take a day off. Like, you, your training is ruined, you know, uh, or – you know, you go easy uh, one day or, or your intervals aren't as fast as you think they should be, right? Um, these types of things are like, it's just education. Um, 
but you know, there's so many competing factors with that. Like if a person tells you something else or, you know, a parent or another coach or uh, a neighbor or a teammate, you know, then it kind of, these, these doubts sneak in your head and, you know, you, the, the athletes have to be, you know, on top of that. And, and I think listening to your body is just so hard to, it's so, so hard to mess up, you know, like if you feel tired when you're running faster and you're not supposed to feel tired, you're going too fast. You know, how simple is that? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> what, and then, but the, the problem is like, if a kid asks, hey, or an athlete says, hey, what, what pace should I run today? And I was like, honestly, I don't know. But whatever the pace is, make sure it feels really easy. Right. And some people can't, they cannot deal with that instruction. So in those types of cases, and I used to like be like, just don't worry about it. Just go run easy. And then whatever comes out, comes out. Now I, I, I might try to give ranges of paces. The problem is you get kids like you give them a range like they'll always go to faster. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then and that's pretty common and that's kind of normal. But I think yeah, it, just communicating with the athlete, understanding that the athlete, making sure the athlete understands what you're saying, and they and they trust that, which just can be tough in a in a high school or even a college kid, you know, especially if they've been doing something their whole lives a certain way. It's tough to change. Yeah. yeah. And when you use that puzzle analogy, like I I think you're referencing like. Like if someone had, say, a four-week plan um, or a four-week schedule and there was all these sessions planned out and they had to, you know, change one of those pieces of the puzzle, um, you know, so many people uh, struggle with that concept. Um, I mean, there's only, yeah. like, you can only plan so far ahead and because um, you, you don't know what's going to happen right. week to week. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, exactly, and that's yeah. That, that puzzle analogy is, is really bad. Is you can't force the pieces, you know. In, in a way, it's just like um, it might look good, like th this piece right here might look really good right here, but it doesn't fit, and so you know, don't force it. Um, and yeah, it, it, there's nothing wrong with having a plan that's like a year out. In fact, like for most coaches that coach these athletes, you have a, you have a four-year plan typically, right? But the nitty-gritty details tend to change. Right. A lot of coaches will say like, all right, in this next three weeks, there's going to be a really hard session on this day. There's going to be a really hard session on this day. The goal of that session is X. The goal of this session is, is Y. There's going to be a long, steady run here. There's going to be a race here. But sometimes the details, specifics of these sessions will change, will evolve. Right. Um, and that's normal. You know, um, you know, you you might plan a really hard workout on a Wednesday of one week. And then that week, something happens, the athlete is beat up and you just, you know, you got to be smart about making the adjustment. Um, it might be worth switching the lighter workout that was planned three days later, um, you know, with the, with the harder session. Um, and that's, again, that's something that the athlete has to be on board with as well. If you say, Hey, cause there's ways to say it that might be worse than others. If I say, Oh, you're not ready for this workout, you know, that doesn't sound very good. They might tell the athlete, oh, they don't, they don't, they don't have confidence in me, right? Um, you might say, hey, I, 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 I'm excited about your fitness, but I think I'd like to give you a few more days to get ready for this workout. So let's switch this workout with this other workout, and we'll get it there. You know, and it's just again, it's communication and like dealing with with emotion sometimes, and making sure that people understand that you're on their team and doing what's best for them. Yep. And yeah. what about like? Would you say that 
there's a fair few runners out there that chronically are under recovered. <laughs> yeah, I totally, um, yeah. you know, I think, and it goes back to that concept of doing more, right? Um, I also think that's often the, 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 the outcome of thinking you took a recovery week or a recovery cycle when you didn't really, yeah. um, you know, and I like, I know some people that can recover, like my wife, for example, and, and our friend, uh, Steph Bruce, like, like, for example, Lauren's like loves to, loves to, you know, she has her routines and things and she can really get it done. Steph's got, they, 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 her and her husband, Ben, they have two children and uh, their lives are like hectic. They're always running around doing stuff, but you know, they got the naps though. They have the naps down all the time. Like the eating is good, uh, but they also relax, right? Like they know how to relax like, at night, like, you know, have a glass of wine here and there. And Steph's really good about sharing her nutrition and that and all this. And so, you know, it just shows that, you know, they're really on top of it with those kind of things. And like Lauren and Steph and all, most, pretty much most elite athletes, they recover hard. Um, and so they know what they know when, when their coach tells them this is a recovery week, like they take it as seriously as they take a hard week seriously, you know? Um, and I think that's at, to your point. I think a lot of people, they think recovery, they think like rest or they think easy running or no running is detrimental. But again, it goes back to education, you know, understanding the physiology of training and the training response and healing and so on. And so forth. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Like I've, I've had some of my best races, um, over 10 K I think it's happened twice. Um, after about seven to 10 days of sickness, um, like not major sickness, but it's just a bit of asthma. I was out yeah. for seven to 10 days and it forced me to train pretty light. And then it was in the lead up to a race and then I was just so fresh. And um, yeah, yeah, it's funny. I had the same conversation with one of the more um, diligent and keen athletes I coached um, last week. And he's just been so consistent with his training um, over the last 12 weeks, like almost too consistent. And um, I scheduled a really light week for him this week and he um, he rang me up and he was almost upset and he said, it's too easy. The training's too easy. And yeah. um, I, I had to have this chat with him to say that we've done it for a reason. Like, because I, I, yeah. I, like, I want him to, I suppose, get fitter, like um, to absorb the training. And yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I think yeah. it's an important concept because like when, when you're a keen runner, like you can, you just think it's all about hard work and on race day, like, like when you're when you're actually racing, it is about like being good at tolerating pain and, and pushing yourself. Um, but in training, like it's it a, a bit more of a smarter balance. Yeah, and you're right. And there's there's a lot of people who are what we might call like training heroes or you know training champions, where you basically leave it out on on the training uh, uh, sessions and, and get nothing left for races, which would be under recovering typically. And and what you mentioned about uh, you, you, you mentioned something about like you're sick and then you come back and, and you, you have a PB, right? Yeah. Um, which makes total sense from a, from a papering standpoint, yeah. especially if you've been training hard before. Um, and you seem like a fairly laid back guy. Uh, and, and so for you, that might work well because you know, you're able to deal with that emotionally. Are you able to convince yourself? Okay. Like, 
because of what you know and, and your education. So you're in your experience. So you're thinking, oh, you know, I, I took a 10 days off because I was or not off, but, you know, backed off so much. Uh, you're like, OK, this might help me for my race. Right? Despite being sick, where others are thinking like, whereas others will say, oh, man, I, I've taken 10 days easy. Yeah. There's no chance that I'm ready now. Right? And then yeah. just that doubt and that emotional load could be detrimental to performance, even though physically you're actually ready. Yes. See this all the time, right? Some athletes, it's it's environment. Like if if it's hot or if it's raining or if it's humid, uh, or if you know X Y Z, right? A morning race, uh, an evening race, or whatever, what have you. These little things that creep into their heads. Same thing, you know. So it's yeah, across the board. Nice. Um. Uh. Uh, like I listened to another podcast. It was when you were coaching, uh, yeah, Lauren, your wife, um, and. It was a little bit of tongue in cheek um, in that um, the one of the benefits of you being able to be a husband and wife um, coaching dynamic was um, just the the ease of communication and and your insight yeah. to like when she's dropping things um, yeah. you know you know that she's pretty flat and she's um, you know where she's at with training and um, yeah. uh, I think you even have the benefit of checking her wrist heart rate at night. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not creepy at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah ha- no. how important is, um, yeah, I suppose like that aspect, um, like they're hard to quantify like those, those aspects of, of yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's such a good point. I think there's a lot of, you know, with Lauren specifically and she would, she could describe it better, but she sometimes knows like when she's really tired because of these little these little actions or behaviors like tripping up, walking up the stairs or, you know, dropping things or, you know, fumbling something. Just like, kind of almost like you get so tired that neurally you can't process information very well. <laughs> so everything's a bit like you lose a bit of coordination, a bit, everything's a bit delayed and, you know, it's uh, it, it just kind of happens and then, if you've done it long enough, you realize these things, right? You take note of these things. And you can't quantify that. You said, like, I'm not going to count, like, inner training load, dropped two cups today, or, you know, whatever. But you can't really do that. But you, you see, you observe it. And at the elite level, at her level, like, she knows that herself. And she can communicate that with her coach, obviously. And, like, and their coach is so good with that, like, in terms of communication. Um, you know, they're all, they meet every day. So like you have constant visual feedback and, and verbal feedback from athletes, which is the best form of monitoring, you know? And I think this is where technology will be difficult or it'll be difficult for technology to surpass the, that really in tune coaching and, and, and observation like, like her coach Ben has, um, you know, it's that stuff, you know, <laughs> there's no piece of equipment or watch or heart rate or, uh, IMU or whoever that can pick up those little things. Um, and every athlete has their own thing. Every athlete has their own little, you know, individual behavior they might do when they're really tired. And so the best coaches you know, kind of pick up on those things. It might be your form when you're running, like today you look a little flat, you know, uh, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard um, Steven Seiler talk about the hair and the yogurt. Um... <laughs> Um, t- test um, which is just his observation of like the yeah the Norwegian athletes in the morning like if they've got head head down over their cereal bowl that they're probably um they're probably a bit fatigued um yeah 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 that's a good point yeah, just observing little things uh, like yeah sure that's fun 
um, with with um, yeah training load and um, the future um, uh, quantification of training load. What gets you excited, and 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 what areas are you really keen to sort of delve further into in the research? Yeah, so I got a couple of things in the works right now, working with some uh, individual athletes and small groups about using uh, a method that we described a little bit in this paper and this commentary. I believe it was like the uh, accumulated ground reaction forces times RPE and, and things like that, um, making it a bit more biomechanically specific to each athlete. And now that's kind of tough, like for the average coach that doesn't have access to a lot of fancy biomechanical equipment. Um, but I think there's going to be down the road, um, and it's possible right now, it's just having access to some of the, the labs or equipment. But, you know, labs are being moved to the field now quite well with wearable technology. But I do like the use of... Um, some uh, some measures of, of external force or external loads or wh whether that's force or uh, accelerations or things like that. Um, and then trying to kind of come up with a way, because you can't always measure forces. Right? We do have like wearable, like wireless insoles from, from Novell, the, 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 the load soles, which are just wireless. They only measure vertical forces, which are great. They've been validated and are reliable. Um, under various conditions, um, but it's still not quite feasible for a, a large number of athletes to wear these daily, right? But what you can do is something we have done in the past is you can do a almost like a baseline test where you um, uh, where you have an athlete run with the insoles at different paces, slow, slightly faster, slightly faster, like race pace and really fast. And then you can use a nice simple regression, uh, sort of a linear trend line to kind to fit it through these points. Because as you speed up, the force goes up and it's not perfectly linear, right? It's, it sort of fits like a second order polynomial, basically. Uh, well, a third order polynomial. And there's some good research on that. So then you can kind of use this regression line and then use a re re regression equation to plug in pace. And then it basically can estimate force at any given pace within that uh, trend line. Right, and so if you finish your run, you can tell me, hey, and after I've tested you and I have your regression line in the Excel sheet, you finish your run and say, hey, my pace was uh, 6.55 per mile. Well, I plug that in there, and on average today, your average force was per step was X amount of body weights of force, right? Then I say, hey, what was your average cadence today? And you say 180, right? Uh, and then uh, and then I say like, how long was your run? And you'll say 100 minutes. Right, and then you can you can calculate obviously that that this would be 1,800 steps, right? And then multiply that by the average force per step given the pace that you gave me. I know yeah. it's a lot of words, but ultimately you can you can estimate the accumulated force over the course of that run from the estimated force per step and the number of steps for the whole run, right? Um, and then. So that's nice. And then you can kind of see, like, if I'm an athlete that I run 60 miles every week, right, how different is each week, really, from a mechanical load standpoint? So if I'm, if I'm 60 miles one week, but, you know, something like 55,000 body weights of force, and then the next week I'm still 60 miles, 
but now I'm 65,000 body weights of force. Like it's a massive increase, despite my mileage being the same. And we kind of touch on this in this commentary about how, you know, you can have a person run 10 kilometers, right, at any given run, but depending on the run, the load on the body is vastly different. And so you can't just say, I ran 10K times seven days, you know, that's 70K a week, um, and that's it. And the next week I do the same thing, and it's still 70K. Like, anyone doing that is completely missing the point of quantification of training. And um, does that uh, ground reaction force load change um, depending on um, surface as well? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, it doesn't change. Like, it's not a drastic change, especially here we're measuring inside the shoe. Um, and you kind of adapt, you kind of uh, adjust depending on like a softer surface, you, you kind of stiffen up a little bit, uh, a more rigid surface, you're a bit more compliant. So it kind of, but, you know, unless you're running all the time on grass or all the time on pavement. Most people, I would say, depending on where you live, spend most of them on pavement uh, or uh, most of the time on whatever the surface is in their, in their area. So you, you're, you're well advised to sort of test over surfaces that are familiar with these people, right? Yep. Like on average, what is the surface you run on most? Yes. And yes, the surface will affect the, will affect the force, the shoes will affect the force, but not that much. Like not enough that we're still just estimating, right? Yeah. But the thing is, even if it's off by a couple of newtons or a hundred or you know, forty newtons every step, it's still better than just saying it's seventy k a week every week, you know? And that's it, a massive assumption that that means the same thing every week. It's not. Yeah. Now that's that's cool. Like, cause that definitely is like making it like more specific. And then is the hope that you that they'll be able to you'll be able to link that more likely with injury potentially um and and, and certain types of injury well or, maybe i yeah. i think it's a part of the, it's a part of a, another puzzle right so you know measuring external load is an advancement from measuring mileage only for sure yeah right measuring like athlete specific you know total load within a run depending on number of steps is an advancement but it's, we're still, we still don't know what that load means for that person. Like, you know, how much force can you handle, right? How much force can I handle? And we don't know that. Um, we don't know that because your bones might be denser than mine, for example, or my, you know, and vice versa. So um, we still, we, you're still missing the, we're still missing like the, how does that external force translate into like stresses and strains on the tissues internally inside the body? And then that's just, that's the first question. The second question is, how are those stresses and strain affecting the tissue? Right? Yeah. So, is the tissue actually damaging w within those magnitudes of internal uh, loads? And maybe not. So we so there's a few things that we don't know. We know the external. We need the external force. We know what the internal response is mechanically, and we need to know how the actual tissue uh, ends up handling those those internal loads. And right now, we can do this pretty well. The external load but we can't do the other stuff very well yes now you know people like brent edward the calgary and, and carl zelick and his uh uh and his uh, grad students at vanderbilt university in tennessee here in nashville they've done some nice work on um you know estimating internal loads using fairly simple uh like fairly simple to a scientist very complex to most people um but it's a really good step in the right direction 
in terms of like using some sim fairly simple input data to, to estimate things that might be very valuable down the road. Um, and I think that will eventually get us somewhere really valuable. Yeah. No, that's, that's um, so interesting. Um, and uh, like I'm so wrapped, there's um, people like you and um, yeah, um, pushing the envelope in terms of trying to better quantify um, training load. Um, yeah, um, as a running physiotherapist myself and, um, and a lot of runners out there, like so many runners get injured. So um, yeah, the more insight and the more the more research in this area, the better. Um, yeah. Yeah. Max, like, is there anything else that um, uh, you wanted to add or um, how how could people reach out to you if they're interested to follow you, say, on Twitter? And and um, I saw that you've got um, a survey for coaches on your Twitter account. Um, yeah. Do you want do you want to share yeah, anything? There? Uh, the, that study is is completed that you reminded me that I need to take that down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so thanks for that. It's, it's, we just, we, we reach our, our, uh, our number of people that we need it. So I'll, uh, thanks for mentioning. I will, I will take that down. At least I will unpin it uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we, we had about 220 responses. We needed, we needed 200 for that one. So that's, that went really well. And so we're working on the data now. Um, is there yeah, any, any, out, I mean, any patterns, out, any patterns well, yet? Uh, so not, we're not quite at that point. We're just, we've been sort of, um, we've been going through the data and kind of organizing it and making sure that's, it, you know, processed well and organized well and, and coded well. There's a lot of categorical type uh, answers. Um, so that takes a lot of time. Luckily, we have a great biostatistician, Dr. Meredith Ray, who's up and out with that. And that's a project with, uh, with Amanda Estep, uh, here in Tennessee and then, uh, Rich Willie as well. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we'll have that sorted out pretty soon, I hope. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just one of those things on the plate kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, for reaching out, like, you know, I, if people ever have questions or want to chat about these things, then you can, you know, my email address is on the University of Memphis website, uh, faculty profile. But then, yeah, Twitter's probably the, the most engaging, uh, fun, interactive way to, to, to communicate often. Sometimes not so fun, but most of them fun. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, I guess my Twitter is uh, at BiomechMax, just all one word, BiomechMax. And uh, yeah, I think it's, there's been some really good discussions on Twitter, and I encourage, you know, scientists and clinicians and coaches to be part of it, at least the discussions on these things. I think it's uh, it connects people. Like a lot of my collaborations and research have, have stemmed from that, uh, you know, and then end up, you know, meeting up with people physically at conferences when they when they were ha occurring, and I've developed friendships and really good partnerships. So it's a uh, it's a nice way to network, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, I encourage all uh, listeners to have a look at um, yeah your your Twitter um, because you're really good at sharing um, yeah the latest things that you're doing and, and anything that you find interesting from yeah a running running point of yeah, view. Thanks, appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Max, yeah, thanks so much for your time. I'm really appreciative of it. And um, yeah, you shared, shared so much interesting stuff and a lot, of, a lot of runners will find what we talked about useful. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for having me and I uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, looking forward to hopefully meeting you in person someday. Yeah, no, that would be awesome, Max. Yeah. All right. Thank you.